the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Group. Hosted by Bill Bullington. For the next hour, you'll receive information on current market conditions and trends that could affect your financial future. If you have a question, you can participate in today's program by calling 216-901-0945. That's 216-901-0WHK. You can also reach Bill by going to his website, BullingtonCapital.com. And now, here's Bill Bullington. Well, <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Welcome back. I am so glad to be here. Actually, I'm glad to be anywhere these days, but uh, especially here, because I think I've got a lot of really nice stuff to talk about today. Uh, things that you might not have thought about with your investing. Uh, if you hear something then you want to know more about it, you can always reach out to me on my website, BullingtonCapital.com. You can sign up for the seminar that's coming up on May 2nd there, and we're talking about is a recession coming, and how could that affect your investments? And I've been hearing over and over, a recession is coming, a recession is coming. When do you think it'll come? Well, um, a recession is coming because it's like winter. Winter comes every year. Everybody knows winter's coming. They just don't know exactly when. <laughs> Recessions are a natural, normal part uh, of an economy. Sometimes the economy is growing faster. Sometimes it's growing slower. That's what the recession is, is the slow growth. When that happens, yes, there are certain investments that have a tendency to hold up better than others. But to jump in and jump out of the market, probably not a good idea. If you want to reposition some of your investments... That's okay. The uh, I would take a look at that. During a recessionary environment, we'll be talking about what types of stocks tend to hold up better during a recession. We'll talk about which kinds of, of stocks and which kinds of funds uh, end up recovering a little bit quicker. And we're going to talk a lot about staying fully invested in the allocation that you selected for yourself. Like, let's say you decided you were a 60-40 investor, 60% stock, 40% fixed income. Okay. So that 60%, you're not really going to do a whole lot with that other than you'll take a look at it. If you want to move something around, that's okay, but you don't want to take it out of the market completely. And here's why. If we go back, and by the way, thanks to the uh, firm Putnam Investments, they provided this information. So um, listen to my disclaimer at the end of the show about any of this material. <laughs> but here's the deal. If you put 10000 bucks in the stock market, in, at the uh, end of 2003, all the way up through 2018, it's 15 years, your, the average annual return on the S&P 500 was 7.7% during that time period. Uh, if you missed the 10 best days during that time period, 
the 10 best days over 15 years. You only had to miss 10 days in 15 years. Your return comes down to 2.96%. Think about that for a second. 2.96. If you miss the 20 best days, now again, 20 days over 15 years, your return drops to 0.03%. And if you miss the 30 best days, 30 days, roughly one month, one calendar month anyway, in 15 years, your return turns negative. <laughs> and that's the, uh, I, I just can't emphasize how strongly uh, that you want to resist the urge to jump in and jump out of the market. <clears throat> Missing 10 days costs you enormously. You drop from 7.7 down to 2.96. That is mind-boggling that that works that way. Incidentally, here's one of the things that you'll notice. Most of the best days <clears throat> came right after some of the worst days. So when people were the most afraid is when the opportunities were actually the largest because the best days, they almost always occur after the markets dropped a lot. And again, missing those days is just the, uh, because you're out of the market, got scared. That, that's not a good strategy. What is a good strategy is rebalancing the portfolio. That's what we're going to be talking about at that seminar on May 2nd. If a recession's coming, what should you do? Well, you don't want to abandon the stock market. Maybe you want to overweight some stocks relative to others. I would tell you right now, over the past few years, the growth stocks have way outperformed the value stocks. They're not nearly as good of a bargain as they were five years ago. They're actually slightly ahead of themselves, when you do the 60-second test, the other thing that we'll be going through at the seminar, that's how you tell what a stock should normally be selling for in 60 seconds or less. The um, So that group would be one of the groups I would look to kind of peel back a little bit. You can still have some exposure there, but you don't want nearly as much, particularly because the valuations are a little bit high still in that area. So you want to have uh, be concentrating more towards the value-oriented stuff um, and stuff that pays dividends that are high-quality dividends. What do I mean by high-quality dividend? Well, actually, I'll explain that more at the seminar. But there's a difference. There's a difference between high-quality dividends and just high dividends. Most people think the higher the yield, the higher the quality. Not really. Uh, actually, the higher the yield, the higher the risk generally. Because the reason that a, a dividend yield gets very, very high is because the company's probably experiencing financial difficulties. Investors realize that and they're selling the shares knowing that the dividend is not big enough to make up for the losses that could potentially arise. Now, if they're wrong or if they overestimated the damage that the company was going through at the time and they happen to pay a dividend, whenever that problem gets resolved, if it gets resolved, the share price normally snaps back like a lot. So occasionally the greedy dividend investor actually wins, <laughs> but not always. In fact, if you're, uh, um, if you don't like a lot of volatility and that was probably one you want to stay away from the better dividend paying strategies, typically look at things like the valuation. They look at things like how, uh, are the earnings growing over the years? Are, are they relatively consistent? That's the kind of stuff that uh, you know we'll be talking about at the seminar. I've got some examples to, to show you. 
I've got a, uh, an example that has nothing to do with any of that, by the way. And this is a uh, pure growth story. Um, that's one of the growth stories I think is, is still intact. What do I mean by that? Intact. That means I think it has more room to go. I think that this particular area has a lot more room. It's been doing fairly well. So we'll be talking about that and how the economy is changing and what people are calling the second industrial revolution. There is stuff going on behind the scenes that we're going to take a look at that's going to provide that growth that everybody's been looking for. You know, most headlines that you see today are all talking about slowing economy. I I think they're wrong. I think the economy is probably going to pick up. I think the the speed's going to pick up a little bit. I think the uh, election could have something to do with that. But that being said, there's a group out there. There's a group of stocks that are benefiting from all these changes. It's an industry that's probably going to benefit more than the other industries. And we're going to talk about that. You've heard me talk about it uh, quite often here on the show. It's basically the semiconductors, but we'll go in a little bit more detail as to why I feel that strongly about it. And I've got some examples to show you. And we're even going to talk about the the history of that industry and how it's really changed. In fact, over the past 10 years, I've seen more change in my business than I saw in the prior 20. So I've been doing this for actually, I can't believe it, 31 years now. I didn't realize I was that old. (laughs) So you can see, uh, uh, I mean, the past 10 years, I can see more change has occurred in my industry than occurred in the previous 10 years. And the previous 10 years, the 10 years before that made me think that, you know, this can't keep up forever because it had changed so much during that time uh, period over the first 10 years of my career. Hard to believe I'm saying that. I had a guy sign, sitting in my office the other day. He was only 32. He, uh, he was literally born two years before I started working in this industry. That is amazing. And uh, now he's calling on me and, and bringing a lot of good information, incidentally. The uh, BlackRock is a the largest asset manager on the planet now. They're doing enormous things with artificial intelligence. They're employing it in managing money. And we're all, we'll be talking about that as well. How is artificial intelligence influencing the stock market? What does artificial intelligence see or think about recessions? That was an interesting conversation. So, and by the way, I, I really appreciate that aspect of my business. We get people that are calling on us that uh, uh, share a lot of information, all their research, it's latest, it's up to date, so you can see what they're doing. And that's kind of important. That's actually very important. When you can, when you get the, um, when you get ideas of what the big firms that can move markets, okay, these guys, six trillion in assets, they they can move anything anywhere they want. The uh, when they're coming out and telling you what their views are, you should probably pay attention because if they move and they act on those moves, what they do, um, it's going to cause things to happen. So he talked about interest rates. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, their view is that interest rates probably going to remain flat uh, and, in fact, may actually go down back to former level, you know, the levels they were two, three years ago. That's really fascinating. If, if, if they are right on that, then bond funds are going to do significantly better than they've done in the past three or four years. 
You know, when, when interest rates are rising, bond funds really struggle. If interest rates go back down to the levels they were before, then they didn't say that, by the way. They just said that they thought that they might taper off a bit. Tapering off means they're going to drop. So if they're going to drop, bond prices are probably going to go a little higher. It's a uh, interesting dynamic. So again, you know, if you're looking at where to invest over the next four to five years, I think you have to look towards the stock market. I think you want to pay attention more to the higher quality stuff, which hasn't done quite as well as the riskier stuff. The S&P 500 is one of the riskier ones. In the long run, incidentally, that 15-year track record, the model that I'm using that's not invested in the S&P 500 has kept up even that of a management fee. Now, we're not allowed to promise that that will continue that way in the future. That's just what would have happened in the past. But we're not allowed to promise that um, because you know things change and they will change. In fact, one of the things that we'll be talking about in more detail as well uh, and uh, we're still working on the Look Out for the Bull website. I, I apologize. It's taken so long to get there. There are some things that are just beyond my control. And uh, it's going to help investors take a look at the funds that they're invested in. I'm going to show you how to dissect those funds, figure out what kind of risk those fund managers are taking or the funds themselves. An exchange-traded fund, by the way, typically doesn't have a fund manager who's picking stocks. They have to name a fund manager, a CEO actually, but they're normally using a mathematical formula or a series of formulas to select the stocks. And that has a big impact on what their performance is going to be. What kind of stuff are you putting in? It's kind of like a recipe. Here's a recipe. It's actually a checklist. Does it meet this criteria? Yes. Okay. It gets to stay. Does it meet this criteria? Yes. It still gets to stay. Does it meet this criteria? No. Oh, that one's got to go. <laughs> Got to meet the criteria. Normally, the criteria will be four or five. Uh, there will be typically four to five pieces of criteria. That makes a big difference on how the stocks are being selected. And if you go into the fund, you can actually look at the holdings in the fund now. And there are tons of services online that, that will let you do that for free. You can take the, the top 10 holdings. You do that 60-second test on each one of those holdings that in the 60-second test I talked about earlier in the show where we tell you how to figure out what a stock should normally be selling for. When eight out of the 10 stocks are selling for three or four times what they ordinarily would be selling for, you probably want to avoid that fund. I'm just saying, if you're paying too much for a stock even though you bought it in the fund and the fund's got a whole bunch of other stocks in there. But yeah, if it's got too much money in that particular stock, it's not a good thing. So that's called avoiding risk, actually managing the risk. And you know, it's, it's really not that difficult to do, especially with the, uh, the shortcuts I've developed over the last 30 years or so. Uh, it cracks me up to talk to people that are in the industry that call on people like myself because they've created an enormous amount of really sophisticated math that says the same thing. <laughs> and uh, it's so funny because they teach in the courses how to do the really sophisticated math. And then these guys, poor guys have to sit down and, and learn how to do this and they have to memorize all these formulas. And uh, uh, if somebody would just show them what I'm going to show you on the second, they would all be doing the same thing I did and going, oh, <laughs> Wow, I've been wasting an awful lot of time. And uh, yeah, 
And uh, so when you if, you if you get that down, it, it's not going to, by the way, it's not going to guarantee anything. In fact, you, you can't guarantee things in our industry. Um, there are certain guarantees. The guarantees are typically as strong as the companies that are making the guarantee. So that's, you got to, I, I know we don't have a much time left on this segment of the show. We'll talk about that uh, in the next segment. How strong are the guarantees? Where do you get really good guarantees? And uh, that's that's a big trick, especially today. The uh, lower interest rate environment, it's hard to get a guarantee of a really high interest rate. But we'll explore a lot of that stuff when we uh, get back from these commercial messages. And uh, feel free to go to my website, by the way, to sign up for that seminar if you'd like to. Now that I hear the music, i got to take a break. You listen to Bill Bullington right here on 1420. Stay tuned. So, I said I would talk about guarantees, guaranteed investments, uh, and that's what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes here. Uh, guaranteed investments are those things that where you put your, your money, you invest your money, and they guarantee an interest rate, and they're going to guarantee the principal against losses. Okay, that's the, uh, um, the my definition of guarantees. Now, when, whenever I say that, people normally think of CDs, and... That's okay. That's, that is one form of a guarantee. You get the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation backing up the bank who's making up a guarantee. And that's pretty strong. That's really strong. Then there are guarantees from the federal government. You can buy bonds directly from the federal government. I, I'm not sure I recommend doing that. I, I bought some bonds, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I haven't been able to get back into the bank. <laughs> the website since then they've had my money it's like well, okay we got your money try to get it back <laughs> no, their website is unbelievably difficult yeah and i do this i you know i do a lot with technology so anyway it's funny i just haven't spent the time i didn't want to spend the time uh, i i held on the phone once for an hour nobody picked up and so that's the government but anyway those are government guarantees you can buy bonds from the federal government you can actually buy them through your brokerage firm now, so you don't actually have to open an account directly with the Fed the way that I did and get locked away from your money. <laughs> well, it's very safe. It's so safe, I can't even get it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's another source of a guaranteed fund or guaranteed funds. I'm going to try to do something here. The um, I was going to look at the current interest rates. You know, if you have an, a subscription to the Wall Street Journal uh, or Barron's Online, they have all the rates, um, treasure rates on this one page, market data, and I'm trying to find it here. Okay. So a three-month treasury is guaranteed at 2.4%, which is actually higher than the two-year, which is really funny, which is only 2.38, which is higher than the five-year, which is only 2.36. And the 10-year is 2.54. That That's just right now. That changes every day, actually. They fluctuate every day. A little bit, not a lot. The 30-year is 2.96. So if you want 2.9%, you want the highest interest rate, 
You have to be willing to hang on to the bond for 30 years to be guaranteed your principal by the United States government. So you'll buy the bond, you'll get, let's say you bought $10,000 worth, you'd get $296.10. And uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, you get $296.10 on $10,000. Woohoo! <laughs> the, uh, but that's, you know, that's roughly a little bit less than 3%. And that's about as good as you can get with a government guarantee in the United States. Uh, that's a direct obligation of the United States government, which is considered the safest because, you know, they, they own their own printing presses and can print the money and pay you if, if it actually came down to that. Hopefully it never does come down to that. That's what happened in Germany back in the 1930s after the First World War and uh, caused the Second World War. But uh, we're nowhere near anything like that now. But that's basically where you are. And I'm looking at the average across the country of five-year CDs. Five-year CDs average yield right now is a little over 2%, uh, 2.01. That rate's been coming down a little bit. You can find slightly higher CD rates. They, in fact, for for a long time, CD rates were actually higher than the short-term treasuries were. Now it looks like they're more equal. So you could buy short-term treasuries. Those are your guaranteed interest rates. My point here is that you're not looking at a lot of money unless you're willing to increase your risk a little bit. Now, there are some exchange-traded funds that invest in senior notes, senior uh, bank notes that corporations took out. I mean, bank loaned them money on a short-term basis, maybe six to nine months. They're going to pay that off. Normally, they pay a much higher interest rate on that. The current yields on a lot of those are like three and a half. Uh, there are some mortgage-backed security bonds. Those They're basically buying mortgages that have been insured by federal agencies in most cases, some of them not, but in most cases, it's you know it's a federal agency that's actually standing behind that mortgage, and that is a uh, uh, the rates there right around three three and a half. Um, you have to be much more careful with that one. I'm not I, I won't be able to take the time to go ahead and explain that, but I would just I would stick with the floating rate and the short term treasury bond funds right now. If you're looking at a place to uh, put some fixed income and have it really safe. Might even just buy the treasuries direct. But those are the safe ones. You know, when you have a, a bank loan uh, and it takes precedence over their other debt, like preferred stocks and bonds the company's issued, it's considered safer that way because if the bank, the company runs into trouble, you're going to get paid before they get paid. But it's not always completely safe. That's why you have a much higher yield on that than you will on a short-term CD or a uh, treasury. So there's some credit risk. There's not a lot. You, you try to, well, I shouldn't say that. You know, as soon as I say that, we'll probably have another 2008 on our hands. <laughs> but um, the bottom line is they're, they're considered safer because of their short maturities, because they have seniority over a lot of the other debt that a company may issue. Uh, so, and the highest rates right in right now, somewhere between three and four percent. Four percent is not a uh, uh, you can't get that in a fund because the funds are normally diversified, and that's my favorite way to invest in that particular asset class. When you think about that, if you think about that for a second, okay, if you've got three and a half percent 
And that's what you can expect to have with, with minimal fluctuation. Uh, you get the guarantees of the underlying companies, the fact that they're diversified. You know, it's still only as good as the companies are. And if we get into another recession, you could see that thing drop 10, 15%, no sweat. That's a lot, by the way, for that type of a fund. That is a huge amount. That's about what they fell in 2008, 2009. But it's not like the stock market that was down 57. You see what I'm saying there? So there's the, uh, and to get a slightly higher rate than you would, well, it's, it's one and one and a quarter percent, maybe over what you might get for a CD. I don't know. You know, I think under the current environment, it's probably worth the uh, risk that you're taking. I wouldn't put 100% of my money in there under any circumstances especially when you can get more than 2% on a fund that's got short-term treasuries in it, okay? Um, the short-term treasuries pay a little bit less, but they're treasuries. I mean, you know, it's the United States government standing behind that. So um, we'll cover a lot of this again on that May 2nd a workshop. Because this is really important. Uh, you know, I, I get an awful lot of people that don't want to have, they don't want to see a fluctuation of more than 15% or so in their investment accounts. Okay, that means we're going to have to put nearly all the money into something like short-term treasuries and maybe 10 or 20% of the money in stocks. Uh, the next thing they say is, but I'd like to make about 5 or 6% a year. And I'm like, mm, yeah, okay, <laughs> so would I. <laughs> but I don't think you can do that Well, with a 15% maximum risk tolerance. I just don't. And I know that lots of people will say, oh, yes, you can. I can. No, you really can't. And there's one of two reasons somebody might tell you that is that they just don't know any better or they don't want you to know any better. Now, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. If I have 50% of my money at 3.5%, okay, that's 1.75 of my total. You get that? Three and a half percent, half of three and a half percent is 1.75. So if I had half of my money invested at 3.5 in one of those short-term uh, floating rate note funds or a, uh, oh, I forgot what they call them. I know what the acronym is and I don't want to use it because it'll confuse everybody. A, a fund that invests in mortgages, you might get around three and a half percent in that. It's still going to fluctuate. Your fluctuation could be somewhere around 15% or so. So 3.5%, that's a long way from 5 or 6%. If you had the other half of your money in stocks, stock funds, and over the last 15 years they'd average, let's say they just averaged 6, 6%. That's less than the uh, S&P 500, by the way. So 50% of 6% is 3%. So you take the 3% plus the 1.75% you got on the half of the money that you put in the bonds, you got 4.75. That's not bad, but it's not six. So, and this is probably the, the biggest problem we as advisors face is clients always want about 2% higher than you can safely get them to, <laughs> depending on their, on their uh, risk tolerance and uh, their ability to handle risk. You know, the stock market was down 50% twice inside of one 10 year time period. And if you're not aware of that, then, you know, somebody should show you. That's one of our jobs as advisors is, is education. And the market's down 50% and you've got more than, you know, 30% of your money 
into stocks, you're going to be down more than 15%. That's that simple. And the kickback I always get from the portfolio managers and other investment advisors is that, well, yeah, but that doesn't happen that often. Well, really, how many times does it have to happen in your lifetime to kind of change your plans? Like, I'll tell you how many times it has to happen. One. <laughs> it only needs to happen once. So, And then you have to change all of your plans. You're going to have to cut back, look for ways to cut back. And, and that is rough. That's incredibly rough. And our stock market returns now have been a lot lower. That's 7.5% or so, what we were talking about earlier in the today's show for the past 20 years. That is a lot lower than its long-term average. And by the way, that 15-year average, you are knocking off the two-year period, or almost three years, in, that started in 2000. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this show, probably many of them weren't even born by the year 2000. A lot of them didn't have any money because they were in grade school in the year 2000. But, but let me catch up to speed on what happened there. In the late 1990s, there was this thing you may have heard of. It's called the Internet was invented by Al Gore. <laughs> the, the internet was growing rapidly in Microsoft and Intel and Cisco systems and almost every company that was in technology was growing at these hugely super fast rates. And it had grown at that rate for three or four years in a row. And everybody took that last three or four years and said, you know what? This is just the new normal. It's changed. It's different now. And I'm going, no. (laughs) That's what everybody always says in a bubble. That was a bubble. There was a mini bubble. Actually, recently just got popped. And uh, it may not be done deflating yet. We'll We'll cover that in the last segment of today's show. But that was a bubble. And what happens when you uh, invest in bubbles and you project that out into the future? Very dangerous. Because if you were to add that to the 15-year period that I just talked about, the returns on the S&P 500 drop significantly. So now you're talking about returns that, that you know, are in the low single digits, the, uh, you know, a le- lot less than 7%. So I'm the, the type that and uh, always likes to Plan for the worst, hope for the best. That's that's my own personality. And it's funny, you know, I've been called negative for that. And I'm like, no, I'm not really negative because, you know, I have like 80% of my money invested in stocks. That's not negative. How could that be? Ne- that's extremely optimistic, <laughs> actually. The uh, And I get it. But I'm also cognizant that if my portfolio dropped by 40%, it's because I went through another period like 2008 and 2009 or 2000 to 2003. What am I going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to close ranks and keep marching. <laughs> I'm just going to stick to my plan. That's what I'm going to do. I have a, uh, a fairly high tolerance for risk. I mean, it's not fairly high. It's incredibly high. And, uh, and I'm okay with it as long as I'm under control. And that's, an, that's all an emotional and a psychological issue both of which we'll be talking about in more detail in a third segment of today's show, as well as at the seminar May 2nd. The, uh, by the way, the May 2nd seminar, it's only going for an hour, I promise. I will hang around afterwards to answer questions. 
But the uh, um, I'm going to keep these at an hour. Actually, it'll be a little bit less than an hour, more like 55 minutes. I've been getting requests because you know I've been I've been known to talk a little bit, <laughs> maybe a little too long sometimes. So I've got to let everybody go. Uh, after 55 minutes, we're going to uh, uh, take some questions after that. And I'll hang around to answer any personal questions you might have at that seminar when that comes up. I hear the music. That means i got to take a real quick commercial break. You're listening to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. Stay tuned. And we're back. Hey, you're listening to Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon on 1420. Uh, you can also catch this on the Fish's website, 955thefish.com, as a podcast. You can find it on my website as well, bullingtoncapital.com. You can also sign up for the seminar we have coming up on May 2nd. Let's see, yeah, Thursday night. Should be a lot of fun. I am looking forward to it. Feel free to reach out to me. You can call me or you can uh, go to my website and uh, um, contact us through there. If you'd like to talk, set up an appointment just to kind of get to know your meeting. That's what we really uh, like to do. Uh, we'll show you the kind of stuff that the kind of work that we do. Uh, you can ask any questions you want and there's no cost to do that. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit today. There was an executive summary that I saw uh, about the performance of average investors last year. And I got this information from a firm called uh, Dalbar. They do a quantitative analysis of investor behavior. Basically, they look at how the average investor behaves and, and do reports on that stuff. So in 2018, the average equity fund investor underperformed the S&P by 504 basis points. Okay, that means 5%. Basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. So I know it's confusing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Roughly 5%. So the uh, S&P was, uh, yeah. The average fund investor last year was down 9.42%. Wow, that's actually a lot. The, uh, the, the average equity fund investor withdrew funds every month in which the S&P had a material gain. So they're taking their profits or trying to take a gain. And in so doing, they ended up Losing more money. That is amazing. That's, that's hard to explain to people, incidentally. What, what happens if I just take my gains? And then, you know, well, actually, not so good. Anyway, the only month the average equity fund investor made a significant contribution was a month where the S&P lost approximately 2.5%. The two worst months for the average investor versus the S&P were August and October. August was a great month in which the S&P experienced a a 3.2% gain, but the average equity fund investor managed to gain only 1.8%. In October, the average equity fund investor would again trail the S&P by over 100 basis points. The S&P lost 6.84%, while the average equity fund investor lost 7.97%. The average equity uh, index fund investor. So these are the people that are investing in the indexes themselves. They they managed to underperform the S and P by two point eight four percent. That's amazing. The average fixed income investor underperformed the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. That's just an, a bond index that, that shows you how you gives you something to compare your bond funds to. And uh, 
it underperformed by 2.85%, which is a, uh, it's kind of a lot for a bond fund. Hmm. The average asset allocation, those are your balance fund, lost 6.97%, outperforming the average equity fund investor for the first time since 2011. See, they didn't lose as much as the average equity fund investor did. But they were still down more. This is this is what's really interesting. They were still down more. So if you had a balanced fund, it was probably down more than a pure stock fund was. And you know why? Because bonds didn't do very well last year. When you have an interest rate environment where, you know, near the beginning of the year, interest rates were going up, that causes bond prices to drop. So, and if you've got 30 or 40% of your money in bonds and the bond prices are dropping, it's not helping. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, sure, I'm just perusing the list of the average small ca- the average small cap value fund investor was the worst performing capitalization and style fund investor, losing 15.53% on the year. Wow. Now, see, that one surprises me. Small cap value lost nearly twice as much as everybody. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that because the larger companies have typically, I'm sorry, the larger, yeah, the larger stocks rather, uh, have done better for the past five or six years. There's been, there's been a trend for larger companies. That trend's not going to exist forever. That trend will change. And you know, when when Delbar's reporting this stuff, they're not telling you why. In some cases, I'd argue that a small cap value fund, even though it was a, a down a lot more than the S&P was over last year, I think in the long run, it'll probably do better. In the long run, it does have, a, you know, the index has a better track record than the large caps. It's just that the large companies have been so popular as money has been pouring into the stock market. It has to find a home. These portfolio managers have to find a place to put this. The index funds, they don't have to think about it. They're just going to buy, they're going to put more money into the bigger stocks then they do the smaller ones because that's what market cap weighting does. It's one of the contributors to financial bubbles. So uh, in the long run, if you're looking at the better valued companies, if you're looking at smaller companies, those have a tendency to do much better if you're looking at really long time periods. If you're looking at relatively short time periods, anything less than five years, okay, toss a quarter, you have no idea. You just have no idea. I'm I'm always amazed when people call and um, they ask me, well, how how's your fund done in the last one, three, and six months? And how about the one, three, and five years? I'm like, well, what? you really should be asking me what the fund does. And that's what you should be asking. If you're really, a, you know, if you really want to get information that's going to be helpful, you want that return information. But you also want to know what the fund actually does. Because if I told you that the fund was down 15% last year and you're comparing it to the S&P 500, which was a, uh, also down, but not that much, you go, oh, well, the S&P 500 is obviously the better fund. Not really. When you look at what the companies in the S&P are selling for relative to what they normally sell for, they're all, well, not all of them, uh, the biggest components are ahead of themselves. And... If you didn't know how to do the 60-second test that we're going to talk about, you wouldn't know that. Okay, so you would be blindly buying a fund 
just because the share price went up, that's the only reason that you bought it. Because the share price went up more than other funds' share prices. You, you can't get by, you can't do well in the long run if that's all you know. And don't feel bad. I'm here to help. I'm telling you. You get that 60-second test down, you get to the point where you can do it, and you won't have to be an uninformed investor. Looking at the past 12 months is one of the dumbest things you can do. And I, you know, I apologize. I don't mean to uh, offend anybody. Uh, it's actually just, I should say it's, it's an, a very ill-informed method of trying to manage money and highly unlikely to produce above average results over long time periods. It's highly unlikely. I mean, I think the Browns have a better chance of going undefeated next year. And I hope they do. You know, I really do. I just, I just, wouldn't invest a whole lot of money on it. <laughs> yeah, so back to uh, areas that actually did fairly well last year. You see, investments traditionally associated with safety remained out of favor in 2018. See, that, that, that's another thing we were talking about. Your value-oriented stuff, small cap value, right? You're looking at things that are, are selling uh, at cheaper valuations. If you're buying carpet and you see the, the carpet, there's actually a higher grade of carpet that's selling for less money, what what should you normally do? I know everybody's suspicious. What's wrong with it? Well, if there's nothing wrong with it and it's just that it hasn't been, people haven't been buying it. So the store owner decided to drop the price on it. That might be a good buy. That's exactly where those small cap value stocks are. They're, uh, they're smaller. So they grow faster. They're publicly traded. They made it that big. That's a long way. That's a big deal. And now they're selling at a discount. Woohoo! That's a pretty good thing. But you know how they got to be selling at a discount? By underperforming. <laughs> I know, it doesn't make sense, right? It'll make more sense at the seminar. I've got this periodic table. It shows all the, the categories uh, and how they do on a year-by-year basis over the past 10 or 15 years. And you can see what I'm talking about. And it, it's the whole reason, and all of this, by the way, the whole show has been pointing to one thing. Diversification. It's more important today than it has been in my entire career. It's been more important today than it's ever been. The markets are significantly less predictable than they were 30 years ago. And by the way, they weren't very predictable then. (laughs) And it's gotten harder now. But the solution, the solution to that problem is to understand what you're holding Try to avoid those things that are overpriced because eventually, you know, prices like gravity, it comes down sooner or later to where it's supposed to be. So keep the diversification. Try to avoid the overpriced stocks out there and try and be patient. And that's probably the hardest part. The reason that all these investors had done less than they could have was actually a lack of patience. And when you look at the long-term blended rate, Small, medium, large companies, you look at the the funds that invest in those, the blended rate is higher than the rate of the S&P 500, except it's, it's just not higher every year. And that, that's what people don't know. Uh, the uh, inclination is to get caught up in the, the latest news or the headlines, uh, feel like you need to do something about it. Actually, if you wanted to do something about it, the, the right thing to do is to go back and review your plan. Pick up your phone, call your advisor. That's why people, that's why we, I answer my phone. 
Actually, I answer my phone on weekends, nights, you know. It's probably why I live in a, a cubby hole by myself. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, call your advisor. That's what we're there for. We're there to remind you why we're doing what we're doing. And if we, uh, by the way, if an advisor goes down a path and decides to do something like I've been talking about semiconductors, I can tell you that over long time periods, you only need to get one or two of those things right and it'll help you out big time. Uh, If you get them wrong, it's not going to be the end of the world. And that's one of the things that takes a long time to learn how to do is how do I get exposure to an area that has that I feel like has more than uh, uh, has better than average chances of outperforming mainly because of valuations. And if you get one or two of those right over a 10 year time period it can make a big difference. And you don't have to you don't have to put that much money in it. When you've got a diversified portfolio, you probably have exposure to just about every industry across the country and of all market sizes, small, medium, large, that's that's a good thing. And if you overweighted one or two and you maybe had five or ten percent uh, overweight in that one area and that and you happen to be right, that's really gonna you know, it's gonna make a big difference. On the other hand, if you get that area wrong, it's not gonna be that big a deal. You only had ten percent in there. And the rest of the stuff, you know, if it does average, you're gonna be fine. And that's what's that's what's really awesome about diversification if you're diversified correctly then uh, you know you can afford to take a small portion of your money if you want to you don't have to it's not necessary but you know you want to invest in something like the semiconductors because you believe like I do that that they're going to benefit most from the changes that are going on in the economy today and over the next five and ten years and yeah um, by all means feel free to do that if you don't want to do that no big deal Because those companies are actually represented in a truly diversified portfolio anyway. So you've got money in there. You've got some money. And putting more money into it is because you feel like you'd like to try to increase your returns a little bit without increasing your risk um, by too large of an extent. And I think that's it. That, That is probably one of the better ways to invest in today's market. You know, you can find the funds that are going to do what you uh, would like them to do if you know what you're looking for. It's a lot easier to avoid funds that are overvalued. Now, look at the uh, large cap growth. That You should see how much that came down. That's the last little correction that was actually a little over 20%. came down fast. Why does it come down fast? Because the stocks are overpriced. The more overpriced something is, when the market does start to go down, those have a tendency to go down faster than the others. And oftentimes, they'll take long, longer to actually go back up. Their recovery periods will typically can typically be a lot longer. Look at how long Intel and Microsoft stayed down. It took them like 17 years to recover from 2000, from their highs in 2000. It took them over 17 years. Some of them still haven't recovered. By the way, almighty Amazon... Dropped 95%. 95%. And people go, yeah, but look at it now. Yeah, but you were 10 years. If you had $100,000 in that company, it was down to 5000 And it took it nearly 10 years to get back. So if you want to look at that, those types of examples, I wouldn't do that, by the way. Yeah, it's not. You, know, you want to overweight a stock 
You don't want to put more than 4 to 5% of your total, and that is a huge amount of money to put in one stock. And now I hear the music, which means I actually have to close the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon on 1420. Also available at 955thefish.com. Have a good week, good investing, and good luck. just caught another edition of the Bullington Capital Report, broadcasting every Saturday at 11 a.m. on AM 1420, The Answer. If you have a question and you'd like to speak to Bill personally, you can call him at 330-664-0700. That's 330-664-0700. Or online at BullingtonCapital.com. That's BullingtonCapital.com. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Therefore, no current or prospective client should assume that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, including the investments and or investment strategies recommended and or purchased by advisor or product made reference to directly or indirectly will be profitable. Different types of investment involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any specific investment will either be suitable or profitable for a client's investment portfolio. No client or prospective client should assume that any information presented serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized investment advice from the advisor or any other investment professional. The preceding program has been paid for by Bullington Capital Management, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.